welcome to the Masters in Psychology podcast, where psychology students can learn from psychologists and educators and practitioners to better understand what they do, how they got there, and hear the advice they have for those interested in getting a graduate degree in psychology. I'm your host, Brad Schumacher, and today we welcome Dr. Lisa Orbe Austin to the show. Dr. Orbe Austin is a licensed psychologist, executive coach, and organizational consultant. She is also an imposter syndrome expert, author, and co-founder and partner of Dynamic Transitions Psychological Consulting, a career and executive coaching consultancy, where she works mostly with high potential managers and executives. Today, we will learn more about her academic and professional journey, more about Dynamic Transitions, and we'll discuss her mo most recent co-authored book, Your Unstoppable Greatness. Dr. Orbe Austin, welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Brad. I'm happy to be here. Well, as we were talking about before we started recording, part of the fun that I have is just doing all the research on all of my guests. And <laughs> I see that you received your bachelor's degree in English from Boston College. However, based on my research, I think you originally started on a path to become a pediatrician, then pivoted to the English degree. So first off, tell me about your undergraduate experiences and what made you change to English? Yeah, so I was the first person in my immediate family to go to college. Um, and so there wasn't a ton of guidance or a lot of um, understanding of what my options were. Uh, my parents were, my mom was an immigrant. My dad was a second generation immigrant or first gen. And um, they just really wanted a successful kid. And, and I think, you know, in, 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 those, in that time, it, it was like doctor, lawyer, um, business person. And so I, since I was a kid, I was really supported to kind of go and be a doctor at MD. Um, and specifically, I had always liked kids, so I thought I would be a pediatrician, um, you know, and I think when I entered school, I was a bio, very classically bio pre-med major and really struggled in the sciences um, and math um, in a way I'd never struggled before. I had had struggles in math before, but not to the profound level where I can't even pass the class. Um, and I just, I really just really didn't know what to do. I really had not like failed something before. And it put me in situations where I was um, barely passing classes and nearly failing calculus. And so at my second semester of my freshman year, I had to meet with the dean because I got a one six my first semester and I think a one eight my second semester. And he was like, you've got to make a decision. Um, I don't think you can stay in the sciences, but you've got to make another choice. Um, or else, and you you only have you don't have too long on academic probation before things get bad. And so he was like, I would encourage you to make a decision based on something you're doing well in. And at the time I was doing well in my English class. Um, mm -hmm. And so I thought, I think I was doing well in my English class and doing well in Spanish. And so I decided I was going to major in English. And I ended up like taking a billion languages while I was in grad school because I really loved languages. And so I just switched. And at the time, you know, my parents were immigrants. They were paying a lot of money for my tuition. Um, and they were disappointed and had never seen me perform so poorly in their minds. I, I, I was just not doing what I was supposed to do. Meanwhile, I was studying all the time, had no social life, like was really doing everything I could to keep my head above water. But they just couldn't understand how that could be happening and I could be failing. They didn't see that there could be any correlation between those two things. 
And so my father had said to me, you need to get a three, eight. My father didn't go to college. He didn't know what a three, eight was. Um, <laughs> he said, you have to get a three, eight um, next semester, or I'm pulling you and you're going, you're coming to a, a, a university or community college near us. And I really didn't want to go home. And so I worked really hard that next semester. And I did get the, I did get above a three, eight that semester to make sure that I didn't have to go home. And I really loved English. It was an opportunity for me to kind of write and read and, and it was a really fun experience. Um, and then I started to create this idea that maybe I would be a writer. And so I think that blossomed from this idea of what do you do with English professor writer? Um, and so a very sort of narrow understanding of what's possible. Um, and my senior year of college, I was taking some like senior capstone courses um, on writing and poetry, and it was really fun. And I had generally, <laughs> I'm about to tell a story that isn't very fun. Um, and uh, we were working with um, a writer in one of the classes, not a professor in the university, but a, a, a kind of visiting writer, visiting scholar. And she was teaching the prose writing class. And our, our work for the semester was to write like a 70 like page novella. Um, and I had started writing this novella and she just was brutal on me. She just, was, this is the first time in my English career, I was, I was getting really negative feedback about that. I, and I remembered very clearly my, my writing was hackneyed and it was banal and it was, it was boring and trite. And, um, and she just came after me. And because, you know, the kids in the class were, seniors and want to be writers and they admired her she was a published author they all like ganged up on me and so it was really rough um wow. so every time I presented they were just like just tear me apart and so I was like okay I really can't be a writer this is a clear indication I can't be a writer and so I like finished that class and I spent the summer after graduation really lost um feeling like unmoored once again that I just didn't know where I was going to go and I think you know I felt a lot of pressure to figure it out or, and to get a job. And so I kind of spent that summer, one month of that summer specifically thinking about what are the things I do well? What are the things that I can see myself pursuing? What happened in college that I, you know, that I excelled at besides writing and stuff? Um, and I, I was an RA. And so um, during my experiences of being an RA for two years, I really loved working with students and counseling them and supporting them in their own journeys in college. And I really loved that job a ton. And I thought maybe I could be a counselor or a psychologist. And my father um, at the time worked at an insurance company and they happened to have an EAP. And he said, there's a psychologist there. Do you want to talk to her about what it takes to become a psychologist? And so I said, yeah, I would love that. And so I talked to her and she happened to be a counseling psychologist. And she happened to also be an English major undergrad. And she said to me, you know, you don't have to be a psych major undergrad to go to grad school for psychology. And I had never heard that concept before. I was like, oh my God, you're kidding me. I thought I was going to get another undergrad degree. And she was like, no, you can actually, you know, in some cases they require the subject, the subject, you know, uh, GRE, in some cases they don't. Um, but in counseling psychology, and she explained to me about counseling psychology, about how it's about adaptive behavior, how it's about a strengths-based perspective. And I was like, I love all this stuff. Um, and she was like, why don't you just try a master's degree out first, see if you like it. And if you like it, then think about pursuing the doctorate. And so she was the first person who really introduced me to the idea of a counseling psychologist and gave me the entree into then pursuing my, actually pursued my master's degree at Boston College as well. And it started my real love of psychology. And that's where it really began. Well, you gave me a nice summary because my next follow-up question was you actually did stay at Boston College for your master's degree in counseling. 
And there are many schools in Massachusetts that offer graduate degrees in psychology, but it sounds like through that interaction with her, she suggested, why don't you just stay here and then just start your master's degree and see how that goes. So did you consider looking for other schools, um, you know, graduate schools in counseling psychology at the time, or did you just follow the advice and just stay there? Actually, she didn't advise me to stay at Boston College. She didn't really, she wasn't connected to Boston at all. Um, I think she worked in New York at the time, um, but I knew Boston College. It was my undergrad. It was familiar to me. So I applied to Boston College and I applied. There was a program at the time. I don't know if it was in guidance or whether it was in counselor ed, but there was a program at BU. And I also applied to a program at BU. Um, okay. and, and I think I got into both of them, but Boston College was familiar to me. I knew the lay of the land. I knew, you know, I just knew it. So I ended up pursuing, I thought it was a, the least risky opportunity. So I went and pursued the master's degree there. And, and actually what, and I really loved my classes. I loved my experience there. Um, I think what really, like, really changed the game for me was my internship, my second year, where I did it at um, Tufts University, mm -hmm. at the counseling center there, um, working with Jonathan Slavin, who um, was at, at some point, uh, many points, actually, the Division 39 president of psychoanalysis. And got the most amazing, felt like once in a lifetime object relations training there. Um, and for a master's level student, it was a very competitive internship. And they only took a couple master's students, mostly doc students. Um, and I felt so happy to be there and, and to get that experience. It was such a deep training. And they did a lot to educate us and to teach us and lots of supervision. And it just, I just fell in love there. I never, I don't think I ever felt the kind of feelings that I felt for a profession that I did while I was working at Tufts. I just fell in love. It just every single piece of it. I just couldn't get enough. I was just so happy all the time doing even really hard work. It was, there was a lot of really hard cases, but it was just a really supportive and just like, just like blossoming environment. So it just really helped me to fall in love with it. What a change from your previous experience in English class where you felt bombarded, attacked <laughs> to this different environment where you're surrounded and you're feeling so, so uh, enthusiastic about the field. Yeah. So um, one thing that I did notice is that after you uh, worked on your Master of Arts in Counseling and Psychology, you then pursued a Master of Philosophy and your PhD in Counseling at Columbia University. So what drew you to Columbia? Yeah, so um, I think in my second year of my master's program, I think I decided I wanted to be a psychologist. At the time, the licensed mental health counselor route was very, very new. They did have it in Massachusetts, but it was really new. People were having trouble getting jobs, and I was very worried about that trajectory for myself. And so I thought about pursuing a PhD. I applied to a number of PhD programs, um, but my number one choice was, was Columbia. And the reason why was because I really wanted to study issues of race and culture, and they were on the forefront of that. They were one of the, the programs that were on the forefront of, of dealing with kinds of issues of identity, which were things that I was really excited about. Um, and so I went there to work on issues specifically around racial identity. Um, you know, when oftentimes when you're pursuing a PhD, part of your thinking is really about like, where, where are they doing the research that I wanna be doing? Because the, the PhD programs are often science practitioner models. And the science piece is really important for many of these programs to find a fit between your interest and what they have there as prof professors who, who do certain work. 
And so um, that was what I was trying, that I was wanting to do. I wanted to pursue that and, and as research, and it was a great fit for me research wise. And so um, it was, of the five programs I applied to, it was the only one I got into, um, oddly enough, as my number one choice. But it was a place where I felt like I could get the training I really wanted to get. At the time when you were considering a doctor program, did you consider a PsyD versus a PhD? And if so, explain why you chose the PhD route. And the reason I'm asking is many of our uh, guests and some of our uh, listeners ask, well, you know, how do I decide between a PhD and a PsyD? And so that's the reason for the question. Yeah, I think, you know, the way that I understood it at the time was that um, I did apply to a PsyD program. I applied to the Rutgers PsyD program. Um, and, you know, I was encouraged to apply to that program because my, um, my supervisor at Tufts had a lot of close relationships there. He thought it was like the premier program in the country. And so I, I, you know, I felt like I, you know, I kind of needed to do that. Um, but I also, you know, I, I liked the idea of the scholar practitioner model. Um, I liked the kind, the different types of research that work that they would do in a more SID program, more clinically focused kind of like case study, less kind of quantitative. Um, I liked that idea, but I actually really, I, you know, <laughs> this is kind of a weird um, thing, but during my master's program, I actually started to fall in love with stats too, which I, given my history with calculus was sort of like this very odd turn of affairs, but I really... I liked the applicability of statistics. I just liked that you could actually understand human behavior from numbers, which I never understood from like abstract kind of mathematics. Um, and that was fascinating to me. And so I, I took some higher level like math co courses that I didn't need to take, but I just really enjoyed. So I actually really wanted to go there and continue to pursue. I wanted to go to a program where I could continue to pursue my statistics. Um, and I got to do that there. Um, and so I really, I wanted to do more research, more quant based research. And so I think that's what drew me more to PhD programs. Um, and I'm grateful for that quant background, even though I don't probably don't use it as much as I used to, far less than I used to, but I, it was also a way of thinking that I really appreciate um, and still use today. It helps you appreciate those who did do all of those complex research uh, studies and yes. you, you wonder, well, is it just surveys asking yes or no? How do you feel? No, it's more than that. It's you way more to, than that. Yes, yes, it's definitely way more than that. So what advice would you give to aspiring psychology students who are just starting their academic career? I know that you found your way eventually based on your experience, any advice that you'd have for aspiring psychology students? Yeah, I mean, I think um, to keep your mind open, I, I don't know if I would have imagined I would have ended up where I am today. Um, and I can see a sprinkle of all the different career pathways um, that I kind of dabbled in and touched along the way, um, living in my current life as a psychologist. Um, and I just would be open, even if you, you know exactly, you think you know exactly what you want to do, be open to the experiences, take take classes outside of your comfort zone, really open yourself up in your, on your internships and expert externships to kind of experience something new and different. I don't think I regret much about my educational experience, although much of it was hard and there was many, many painful moments. Um, I think I learned from all of them. And, you know, I think that piece I'm grateful for, because it, it kind of led me to this moment today. And so I really it got, even when I didn't like something, I knew I, okay, I don't ever want to do that again. Um, it really helped me to kind of explore so many different pathways. And there's so many possibilities in psychology. Don't limit yourself. There's so much opportunity. 
we were just talking before we started recording that typically people think academic route or practitioner route. You know, I have to own, own my own business or do my own practice. There's so many different ways to apply your psychology degree and graduate degree outside in the real world. So uh, yeah. I'm, I'm glad that you're bringing that up. Do you recall having a plan after you graduated with your doctorate? Did you know that you what you wanted to do or did that kind of evolve? And I, I'm looking at your LinkedIn page and so I kind of see your experiences, but did you have a plan in mind as soon as you graduated with your doctorate? Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, I think when I first started my doctorate, my plan was to go into private practice. Mm -hmm. And then I really got a lot of exposure to research, did a lot of research and a lot, a lot of work in that area. And then I thought maybe I'll go into academics. And I think when I graduated, probably my first, what I was thinking in the forefront of my mind, I had had a really difficult internship. Um, I had done my internship at Kings County before the Department of Justice had done their investigations. And so it was a very difficult place um, before the DOJ got involved. Um, and it kind of made me frightened of clinical work, uh, to be very honest. Um, and so I thought I'll go down an academic route because like you said, there was two routes private right. practice or, <laughs> or like academic. And so I took a substitute role um, in a community college that I thought was at that point, it was super burnt out from my internship and finishing my doctorate that I was like, it'll probably be like super low stakes. I can really just figure things out. And it was a really lovely experience, but not something that was going to turn into like a tenure track role. Um, but it, it really kind of gave me a taste of it. And I was like, I don't really like this. Um, it just felt like there was a lot of politics about the, the department, about saving the department. There's just so much going on. I really just didn't enjoy the, you know, the teaching and, and the way there was just so many other things to deal with. And it wasn't just, it wasn't my speed. And then I tried, then I worked in a role. I kind of got lost again. <laughs> and then I worked in a, a role in which we were actually teaching professors how to teach. So it was like a pedagogical strategy role um, in a center for teaching and learning. And it was kind of like a way station for me to try to figure things out because I, because I was so traumatized by my internship, I think that um, I didn't take my licensing exam immediately and I kind of was afraid of it. And so I didn't really have other options at the moment. And so it, I kind of just took this role. I was in it like six, eight months. I had a horrible boss, um, a really ter terrible, terrible boss. Um, and ended up quitting that job and then deciding that um, I would um, work on, I would work on my licensing exam and pass that and then start my practice. And that's really what began the career that I currently have today is that horrible job led me to kind of do the thing I was avoiding and face the things I had feared so much and develop my practice, which has given me so many opportunities and within it has provided me with a diverse set of things that I do professionally. Well, as we discussed earlier, it's nice to have that experience, even though it might be a bad experience, it lets you know, hey, this isn't for me. And so I think you're referencing your uh, short time, I think about three years at Fordham University as an adjunct assistant professor, and then you went on to Baruch College uh, with the Star Career Development Center. Uh, and during that time, actually at the beginning of that time, that's when you got your licensure and then you actually started Dynamic Transition Psychological Consulting uh, probably about 15, almost 16 years ago. And you actually yeah. co-founded it with your husband back in 2007. So tell us a little bit more about Dynamic Transitions. 
Yeah. And actually, I wasn't actually at Fordham. I was actually teaching for at Fordham like as an adjunct. So I was teaching okay. graduate courses and I had a wonderful experience at Fordham. That's where, that's where my husband went to got his PhD. And I had a lovely experience teaching the students there and working there. I was actually working at a community college. Uh, I don't even put it on my, <laughs> I don't even put it on my LinkedIn because I don't really want anyone to know where it was because okay. I actually talk about it quite openly and it was very, very, it was very, very awful. Um, and so, and then I, I worked, so when I quit that job at the community college, I then worked at Baruch and had a wonderful experience at Baruch. And in essence, Baruch gave me, uh, like this, a serious foundation on career counseling. It was the boot camp of career counseling. And I had had, you know, as a counseling psychologist, one of the things we are expert in is career. Um, it's how we split, how we split apart from clinical in the fifties. And so um, we know career, we've trained in career, we've done all, I did career exter externships, I had career related jobs while I was um, in grad school. Um, mm -hmm. But it, Baruch was just like, it was just like um, the most, it was like Tufts. Tufts was a clinical, then my clinical boot camp for, for getting started. You know, Baruch became my career. We learned how to test, we learned how to, really see people for, for career counseling and not just like tell test them and tell, tell them, they say test them and tell them, where you mm -hmm. just kind of get, you just tell them what's on the report and then you move on to therapy. It actually taught us how to do real career counseling. Um, and it was such a profound experience. I got to just educate on career concepts. I learned about different career fields and trajectories for them. It was the most amazing experience that actually led me to having a career aspect of my practice. I don't think if I had, you know, not been at Baruch, I wouldn't have felt enough confidence in my understanding of career work to do that. And so it was a wonder, and it was where I was working there part-time and it was where I got to build my practice out. Um, so I was also working on my practice part-time and it was really a lovely opportunity where we started, you know, I started the practice with my husband and actually, you know, he was the one who suggested the practice. Uh, at the time, I was really still very gun shy after my experience and in internship. And he was like, well, just start it for me and then just put your name on it. Um, and he was like, you know, if you want to, you can practice. If you don't, you don't have to. Um, and, you know, I think it was his sly way of getting me involved in, in the practice without <laughs> feeling that there was any kind of, I didn't owe anyone anything or I didn't have to do anything. And the first patients, you know, came for, came for me. And so I started to practice again, very trepidatiously, one or two clients, um, seeing if I could handle that. Um, and I actually remembered how much I loved the work. Um, and then we, we had a very diversified practice. So we did psychotherapy, but we also did career counseling. And at, at the time we started the practice, as you might kind of note, um, was the year before the crash. Um, so the, the great recession and, you know, because our practice was diversified, we did, we did okay. We did well, um, because people were not willing to at the time invest in psychotherapy, but they were willing to invest in career. Um, and so our career practice really thrived and it became a mainstay of what we did and what we were known for, because we were one of the few people offering in our area, offering testing. We were one of the few people who actually knew how to write a report related to career testing. We were knowing how we knew how to do job search. We knew how to understand the career. Line. We knew all these different components because of our training at Baruch. Um, and my husband then went on to kind of um, to start the first graduate career center at NYU. So we had a really steeped kind of career background. Um, and so it really allowed us to kind of think about like, could a practice really maintain really diverse strains of, of services? 
we so we started offering organizational consulting and training and speaking engagements and it really just allowed us to really experiment with all the things we were that we loved that we were trained in well i'm going to share the screen and is that where you met uh, uh rich at fordham no i met him at a career counseling job um at um a different community college at kingsborough community college we were working there okay. together um, and we ended up on the same project. And so we met at Kingsborough Community College. Um, well, isn't that, <laughs> isn't that sweet? And so, yes. yeah, it's nice to uh, talk about the history of, of how you guys met as well. And I'm sharing Dynamic Transitions, uh, LLP.com on the screen for those of you who are just listening to the podcast instead of viewing it. And as you can see, you've already mentioned you guys offer many different services uh, within the practice and and. Uh, we're going to get to imposter syndrome in a, in a second here, because that's going to be a nice transition to talk about your newest book, consulting, executive coaching, and then you have a blog. And um, uh, I, I like reading about um, each of you because there are some overlap, but each of you almost have your specialties as well, it almost yeah. looks like. So um, yeah, I like this website. And then here's the TED Talk that uh, you guys, uh, that you did, and, and you gave a TED Talk entitled The Imposter Syndrome Paradox, Unleashing the Power of You, and you have two books on the subject. So tell us a little bit more about what is imposter syndrome? Yeah, so imposter syndrome is the experience when you are credentialed, you know, you have experiences, you have competencies, you have skills, but you haven't internalized them. And as a result of not internalizing them, you tend to um, get performance anxiety when triggered around like being able to show up as your competent full self. So then you typically engage in either overwork or self-sabotage to manage that performance anxiety. When you get reviews, they're often positive because we're high performing oftentimes. But then we tend to ignore any compliments or, or dismiss any kind of positive feedback and tend to hyper-focus on negative feedback, trying to make sure we never make those kinds of mistakes again. We can be very perfectionistic, um, can overestimate others and underestimate ourselves, um, have real difficulty tolerating mistake making, you know, have trouble dealing with failure as well as success. So those are all the different components of imposter syndrome. What actually interested me, and, and thank you for sending me your most recent book. I got to chapter two. Uh, I didn't get a chance to finish it, but I'm reading. I'm going, oh, my gosh, I can relate to this. I can relate to this. And and the facts are that uh, about 70% on up to almost all of us experience some form of imposter syndrome. And one thing that I can relate to to a lot of people is they say, you know, I don't, I don't accept a lot of the compliments, but if somebody gives me a criticism, I focus on that. Yes, <laughs> that, yes. I make sure I don't make that mistake. Yeah. It's almost <laughs> human nature. And so why is it that people tend to experience some of the symptoms or some of the imposter syndrome? And how do we actually overcome that? Yeah. And so for those who are steeped in the in the literature, it's really referred to as the imposter phenomenon. Um, especially because of they, you know, there's a real strong desire not to medicalize it. It's not a diagnosis and you can't find it in the DSM. Mm -hmm. um, it was coined in the late 1970s by two psychologists working in a college counseling center. And I think, you know, one of the things that we know about oftentimes dealing with imposter syndrome is the, and I refer to it as imposter syndrome because that's how people know it in the, in the lay community. Um, but I think one of the things that's really, really important is to recognize that it often comes from early childhood dynamics um, mm -hmm. and family roles. 
And so the reason why it can be so hard, people say, oh, just change your mindset. Stop doing that. Stop thinking that. It's nearly <laughs> impossible um, right. because it's it's been embedded probably since you were a kid. And so we talk about um, there are these really common roles that you can end up in childhood, either the intelligent one who is told like every, everything comes easy to you. So anytime anything came hard to you, you thought it was a sign that you weren't as smart as everyone thought you were. Um, the hardworking one. So the one, usually there's one identified already as the intelligent one, you get labeled as the hardworking one. So everything has to come as a result of really hard work. We see a correlation between uh, the hardworking one and people who have learning differences, you know, or learning issues growing up, um, especially because they had to work super hard to, to stay up with their peers. And then once they got the support they needed, that kind of got embedded as a way of coping. And then the last one is the survivor. So you may not have gotten the support either from um, a parent or a caregiver, they either maybe weren't around or neglectful or abusive. And as a result, your achievements were a method of like surviving. And so for you, it can feel very tenuous um, that if you make one mistake, everything can be taken from you, which oftentimes is not the case, but that's what it feels like. And then family dynamics, like, you know, conflict wasn't well managed in the family, feeling a high need to please others in the family, getting stuck in very rigid roles in the family. You can't be moved. You can't be more than one thing. You get labeled as something and that's it. Um, these kinds of dynamics, narcissistic parental figures, codependent dynamics, they are what lead to it. And so dealing with it also means sort of dealing with those underlying issues and also being able to recognize that some of the current patterns that exist in your, in your work life today about how it shows up often are reflective of those early patterns. The other thing that I read from uh, the book and, and some other literature is you didn't have a good role model when you're growing up. And, and even if you had a role model, maybe the, it wasn't the perfect type of role model to follow, uh, or you didn't feel safe in that environment to actually uh, speak your mind as well. And so it's interesting to me because I, I am somewhat of a perfect perfectionist. And so as soon as I started reading this I'm, and I saw their perfectionism come in, I'm going, no, hold on. I, do I want to read this or not? You know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and I, and I start, I dove in because what I liked about both of the books and let me, let me mention both books first. So your first book uh, is own your greatness, overcome imposter syndrome, beat self-doubt and succeed in life. And that was back in April of 2020. The book was actually a finalist for the 2020 Forward Indies Book Award. And more recently, I saw that it uh, it made the Better Ups list of the top 14 self-help books. So congratulations. Thank you. The second book, the most recent one that I mentioned is Your Unstoppable Greatness, Break Free from Imposter Syndrome, Cultivate Your Agency, and Achieve Your Ultimate Career Goals. And this came back, uh, came out in uh, December of 2022. And it focuses primarily on uh, uh, having or sustaining an imposter-free or an imposter syndrome-free life, reduce burnout, improve healthy relationships and, and leadership skills, well, and, and you talk about toxic work cultures. And so tell us a little bit more about this book and how it differs from the first one. And I'll, I'll give my two cents. Uh, I think this one focuses, um, almost serves as an interactive workbook with some exercises and prompts and activities for you to further develop and, and dive into almost self-reflection. And I guess my follow-up question for you is, how do they differ? And then do you need to read the first one in order to get the most out of the second one? And I have mixed 
feelings about that because he kept <laughs> referring back to in our in you know if you read own your greatness you can apply what you learn there to this exercise and so i'll stop talking and, and let you kind of talk about the second book and how it differs and then do we need to read the first one or would, would we get more out of the second book by reading the first one yeah, so the way that we conceptualize the difference between the, the books, both of them are workbooks, mm -hmm. but the first one is really dealing with your interpersonal, intrapersonal issues with imposter syndrome. So if you want to get over your, your own individual imposter syndrome, it's book one uh, okay. on your greatness. If, you know, the reason why we developed book two was because when we were seeing people actually do the work from book one, we saw there were residual issues that were still remaining. And so those residual issues then we dealt with in book two. And so in book two, it's really like helping people reconnect to their dreams, what they want for themselves. As you can see in my own story, because I, I probably, is, I haven't said it yet, but it, it probably shouldn't shock people, but I also had imposter syndrome um, and is why I ended up writing these books. Um, and so um, one of the things that became really important to me is really helping others with a systematic research-based methodology. And so the first book really is based on the research, the 40 years of research, and it takes you through a, a nine-step model about how to overcome it. We've actually been looking at the data around it, and we've seen that people can actually reduce their imposter syndrome by 30% if they actually do that book. Wow. And the second book is really about, um, and quickly, in about 14 weeks. Um, so it can happen really quickly. Just it's They're very friendly looking books, but they're hard because like you said, you have to face the hard things in the books. Um, they're not, um, they're not a joyride, even though they look really fun. They're, they're, you're facing some difficult things, but the ideas on the other side, they'll be worth it. The second book was really about once you've done the work of overcoming your imposter syndrome, sometimes you find yourself kind of at a loss. Like you kind of realize, I don't really love this job. I don't really love this work. I don't really love this work environment. How do you reconnect to what you want, what you love? Because we can be often so people pleasing that our careers kind of get caught with what other people want from us and we lose ourselves in that. So the second book starts with that and then helps you to kind of identify how we often get stuck in really toxic work environments because we will put up with a lot because we are so grateful to be there or just happy that we got an opportunity that we often take things that we shouldn't take. And we also have the dysfunction that oftentimes we may have experienced growing up that, that also is familiar in these work dynamics. And so it's really helping you to identify what's going on in your work dynamics that may be familiar and how to break that. Um, and then also too, it's really focused on leadership and, and thinking of at every person who works in, who goes into a workplace as a leader and how do you contribute to healthy work culture and what is healthy work culture as people think, oh, healthy work culture doesn't exist. Um, but we sort of talk about what are the components of healthy work culture and how you can actually actively contribute to that and kind of engage in anti, you know, imposter syndrome culture and so it's really focused on like systemic and organizational dynamics and then how to how to break from some of the ones that have been toxic for us. I know a lot of people who are going to be thinking about their own jobs. They're reflecting as they're listening and watching <laughs> this saying, oh, my gosh, it is toxic. And how can I change it? And many people, quite honestly, are thinking I, there's no way I can change the culture of the organization. But I can assure you when you start reading these books. All you have to do is think about an individual first fo focus on yourself and then talk to other people and then form a small group 
almost a self-help group, if you think about <laughs> it that way, and then change the way that you interact with others. And that will actually spread throughout the culture. So it's almost like you, you can't attack the, you can't eat the elephant. You have to take one bite at a time. And so yeah. that's the kind of the analogy that I thought of while I was reading the uh, second book here. And to highlight some of the, some of the chapters, the three A's, Okay, the three A's. Each of the chapters focus. The first chapter starts uh, uh, looking at agency. Second chapter is assessment. And then the third chapter is actualization. So a lot of our listeners may be wondering, well, what does she mean by agency? So I have to ask you, what do you mean by agency? Agency is sort of the ability to recognize that you have power and you can use it. Um, oftentimes when we struggle with imposter syndrome, we often don't feel like we have power to change a situation. So when I talked about that experience that I had in that uh, toxic job after I got my PhD, um, I, I needed to get out of that job. And I really, I, in my head, even though I had a PhD from Columbia and I had all these credentials and all this experience, I thought that I couldn't leave. Um, in my head, I believed I couldn't get another job. Nobody else will want me. Like this was it for me. And even though people were like, you can get a job in a second. I didn't believe any of them. And I, cause I didn't believe my agency. I didn't believe my own power to do something different with my life until something really bad happened. And then I was like, I had no choice, but to be agentic because I was either keep putting up with it or get out. Um, and so I think that that's the piece I'm trying to help people do. And that we're trying to help people do in that first phase of the book, the first couple chapters is helping you to locate your agency and find it and find the resources within you to kind of begin to believe that you do have choice that, you know, we often feel like I can't do anything about this, but what is this, like you were saying, what is a small thing that I can actually do to change this for myself? Maybe it's job search. Maybe it's build a coalition at work. Maybe it's find a mentor. Like there are things you can do. Doing nothing is going to guarantee you stay in the same place but doing something might change something for you. And so that's what we're trying to, to kind of recruit is that kind of agency. And don't be afraid to make that uh, choice because a lot of people will say, okay, if I sit still, I'm not gonna change. But if I do something, what if I do something wrong? Well, as we were talking about earlier, Lisa, we we found out, go ahead and do something wrong. Then that, find, <laughs> that helps you figure out that's not where I wanna go. That's not the path that I wanna take. I should mention, I didn't say this in the intro, um, you have been honored twice as a top voice on LinkedIn in the areas of job search and careers and mental health. So congratulations. I saw that on your LinkedIn as well. And then you have been sought out by media and appeared in such outlets as the New York Times, NBC News, Forbes, Huffington Post, and then Business Insider and Insight into Diversity. And you already mentioned that that's one of your passions as well when you were going through uh, your academic career. Um, one of the things that I did point out, as I said, uh, as soon as I honed in on the perfectionism side, uh, there are five steps, I realize, of giving up perfectionism. And I'll say them. I wasn't going to put you on the spot, but I'll <laughs> say the five for everybody. Number one, acknowledge that perfectionism is not responsible for your success. Number two, accept the fact that the perceived benefits of perfectionism do not outweigh its costs. Number three, embrace the growth mindset. Number four, strive for greatness, not perfection. And that's my problem. Seek support when your perfectionism and imposter syndrome are triggered. And I want to focus on this last one for a second, because there are triggers that happens. And you actually mentioned some of them. If you're under pressure, you're about to give a speech, you feel um, a time constraint, and all of a sudden, uh, you get that trigger for that. Can you talk a little bit more about some of the other triggers for imposter syndrome? 
Yeah. So there can be triggers like a new job or a new position, something that you feel rusty at that you haven't done in a long time. Mm -hmm. um, so you feel like you don't have mastery over it. Opportunities that feel like they're highly visible. And so a lot of important eyes are on it. And also too, when you are from a historically marginalized community, things like discrimination, marginalization, isolation, lack of mentorship, all of these can also be triggers for feeling like you're not good enough and that you're a fraud. Thank you. And I read more about that. I'll continue reading the book. Anything else <laughs> the, that you'd like to say about the book? Um, um, I, I Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I, I think one of the things we're most proud of about the book is that um, it really does work and it does help and it's based on research. Um, and it's really been really powerful to see people change from a different modality. So when we were trained, we, the main me method of change was psychotherapy. And now we see people change from our work and being able to give them tools, um, largely based on psychotherapy, but that they're tools that they can use themselves. And so that's something we're super proud of. And this new book is really exciting for us because it gets to the systemic perspective and the systemic perspective is really important to us. But we also want people to feel that they have power within systems. I remember I had an organizational um, psychology professor who used to say, you can't kiss a system. And what she was referring to is saying, like, you know, when you're trying to look and point the finger at somebody in the system, like, who's the person responsible for this? Um, there's no person to hold accountable. But it's so, so important that we recognize that people make up systems, people engage in the development of systems, and that we need to take responsibility for our own part of the system. And that's the most powerful perspective I think I, I have about a system is recognizing everyone has power to change that system. Um, whether you acted on, on it or not is another story, but. Yep. And, and again, I'll, I'll reemphasize it. It only takes one person in that system to start making a change as well. Yeah. So I, here are some of the exercises that uh, you have in this second book. I, I want to get my hands on the first one as well, because I should read that one as well, because uh, I want to talk and focus more about myself before I look at this, but I, I really did enjoy this. It's a, it's a very easy read. Uh, I, I started reading it last night and I thought, oh, I better read it for about an hour. I spent three hours just reading oh and, and, then all, and then all of a sudden I, I, I realized, oh my gosh, it's one thirty in the morning. I got to put it down. And, and so it, I, I like those type of books that uh, engage you that way. And, and this was oh. definitely interesting for me. So thank you for, for sharing that and sharing your You're time so with welcome. us. I do have a few other questions for you before we end here. In your opinion, what are some of the most critical skills or qualities people should develop in order to exceed or excel in their careers? I mean, I think the the ability of self-reflection, the being able to take feedback and take it usefully, not in a way that it destroys you, but actually helps you to kind of move forward is so important. I think the ability to take risks um, and to recognize that, yes, yeah, sometimes we have to take risks within, with safety nets around us, but it's taking risks has been also an important part of my own career. Um, and I think, you know, I think lastly, really allowing yourself to, to dream and to imagine what might be. I don't, I, I think part of what's blossomed my career in the way that, that um, it has is that I really have allowed myself to dream and take risks. Some of them have gone well, some of them have gone poorly, um, but I really allow myself to kind of think about what I want next and, and dream. So it's been important to me. It's ironic when we're children and when we're growing up, we're asked, what are our dreams? And we continue to dream 
then when we get out in the real world and start working, we don't dream as much. And so what I liked about this book is that it almost forces you to rediscover or reinvent your dreams and, and think outside the box as well. So it's very motivational in that respect. Um, Dr. Orbe Austin, what is what do you love most about your job? Oh, that's a, that's a hard question because I love so many <laughs> things about my job. But I think I think one of the things that I love, probably if I think about it the most, is like being able to, you know, see somebody in the very beginning who's clearly distressed by whatever has brought them to you, um, and being able to see the possibilities for them before they can see them, and really being able to be a part of witnessing those possibilities and getting to see them live in their fullest. Um, there's something so powerful to see somebody take a look at their lives after you've done some work with them and they're proud of themselves. They can't believe they are where they are. There's something so magical about that moment and seeing them fully empowered to kind of live that life. They, they might've have never even dreamed that they could have had. So that's the thing I love the most. Um, I can relate to that as a teacher in, in uh, the university where I'd see the light bulb come on for a lot of my students and then be uh, um, just motivated and, and almost redirect their path uh, once they open up that door. So at the end of most of our podcasts, we usually ask a few fun questions. So I usually ask this one first. Tell us something unique about yourself. Hmm. Uh, I tried to become a hairstylist when I was in my PhD program. Oh, really? <laughs> 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 I applied for hair for hair school and they, they they wouldn't let me. They were like, I think you need to finish your PhD first and then you can come back to us. <laughs> I, I love hair. They, I wonder if they were just thinking, you know, maybe you're just reaching out. Maybe you should finish this and maybe like, you're maybe not you're really into out. it. <laughs> but I love hair. So that that that's a little something I that um that not many people know about me is that I tried to go to hair school in my PhD program. Well, there you go. <laughs> No, that is unique. Uh, what is your favorite term, principle, or theory, and why? Hmm. I don't know. That's a that's a good question. I'm thinking about all kinds of things. I think you know what's interesting is one of the things that I think moved me a ton while I was in my training was interpersonal process um, theory. It was such a revelation about how we engage with a client in the work and really allow the interpersonal process to move the work. I, I really found that work really profound and really just like, like moved me tremendously. I, I still see some of that in my work, but I think interpersonal process work was an you know, interpersonal theory book um, that I read in grad school was mind blowing. So, okay. And then do you have any other advice for those interested in the field of psychology? Um. Yeah, it's it's an it's an amazing world, and I think if you can find the things in it that move you most, look, you have to, as a part of being in that field, you have to learn all kinds of different things. But if you can find the things that move you, move toward them, you know, and and embrace them, you know, part of why I have books today is because I was writing about imposter syndrome, and my publisher happened to see that and reached out to me, and so you know, allow yourself to be out there, be public, don't be afraid of because I think we didn't really talk about that, but I have a, a pretty large social media presence, which a lot of psychologists don't have. And it has been also really helpful to my career tremendously in a variety of ways. And I think that being public and talking about my work and has been something I've had to learn how to do, um, but it has been incredibly supportive to my work. Um, 
it's great to see that you have that supportive. And I did see that, especially on LinkedIn, many, many different followers. And, and uh, it's nice to be transparent in what you're working on, because other people will see that, respect you for that, and then maybe learn from that as well. And so mm-hmm. they see your growth a lot going along with you. So uh, one final question, that's kind of a fun one that you can take a couple seconds to think of is, if you had the time and money to complete one project or go on one trip, what would you do? Well, that's a great question. I would probably go to Italy for like <laughs> for like a year. <laughs> I would go to Italy for a year. <laughs> okay. Have you just been? Enjoy it. Oh, a number of times. I love Italy so yeah. much. It is like okay. a place where it just feels like life is the way it should be. <laughs> Where there's just like a calm pace of life, an enjoyment right. of the land, of of food, of of just people. It just I really appreciate the culture and the environment of Italy. That sounds wonderful. I've been to Italy and I agree with you. It's a different culture over there and yeah. slow, enjoy everything. Yes, exactly. Enjoy your coffee, <laughs> your tea, your bagel, anything. Yes. So <laughs> um, is there anything else that you'd like to discuss or bring up on this podcast? No, I, I mean, I, I kind of, I'm, I'm excited that a podcast like this exists, it exists, like it didn't exist when I was going, going to school or trying to make my decisions. And I would make incredible use out of the, the resources that you have here. Um, because I really wish I, I probably would have made the similar decisions, but at least I wouldn't have felt so scared about making the wrong one. Um, but I think it would have been nice to have an environment to, to learn from. So I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Dr. Orbe Austin, thanks again for sharing your journey and talking about your book with us. Uh, Like I said, I'm going to finish the book and maybe offline, I'll I'll talk to you and maybe uh, persuade you to send the first book for me. So (laughs) sounds good. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to the Masters in Psychology podcast. If you want to learn more about our guest or listen to other podcasts, you can visit our website, mastersinpsychology.com, where you can search through all of the schools in the United States that offer advanced degrees in psychology. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like, follow, or share.